Do not be afraid. Really? We live in times with the virus. We live with a lot of injustice. We live with uh, parents and children not always getting along. There's a lot of crazy stuff happening in our world right now, and it sounds like there was crazy stuff happening in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus sent out those disciples, and when he sent them out, they, they went, empowered by him, but they went, and there was opposition. Today we hear about it from brother against brother, parents against children, children against parents. There's opposition there. What do we do in the midst of opposition? I tend to, to melt. I tend to, to pull back, try and protect myself in the midst of opposition. If we look at the end of our lesson for today, it says, whoever acknowledges me before men or whoever confesses me before men, I'll confess before my father. Whoever denies me, I'll deny him. And isn't it interesting? What that should do is it should make us think of later in the gospel lesson, or not in this lesson, but the gospel. Later in the gospel, we hear about this man by the name of Peter. And Peter denies Jesus three times, that he even knows him, denies three times that he even knows Jesus. Why did he do that? Well, we're told that Jesus tells Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Troubles are coming. In the middle of all that opposition, the middle of his fear, because look what they're doing to Jesus. That could happen to me. And in the midst of his fear, he denied. So when our text for today says over and over again, do not be afraid, it's appropriate for us to ask, really? Why should I not be afraid? In verses 26 through 31, in today's gospel lesson, Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 through 31, has these reasons, and I'll give you another one at the end. First, because of truth. The truth that we shared, what's hidden, what's concealed, what's whispered, is going to be revealed one day. And for this, I can't help but thinking about a movie that my wife and I watched on Friday night. Have you seen the movie Just Mercy? Again, if you have, I'd love for you to text me that or email me that or call me and tell me that. If you've seen that movie Just Mercy, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't, you can go on your computer and type up Just Mercy on Amazon, and it will let you stream it for free, I think, for the month of June. It's well worth the two hours and 16 minutes you'll take watching it. There's a scene in there. There's a lawyer, a Harvard lawyer, who, who's working with people, with the men on death row. And there's one man on death row. He's working with many of them, but there's one that he's, that's really focused in on that man. And he was working diligently. He found a bunch of lies in the testimony that were going on before. And he, he built this case. He built this case. I don't want to spoil it too much for you, but he built this case. And eventually, as he goes and he says, let's work to get a retrial. We just need to go before this judge and, and we need to see if he'll give us another trial. And so they do all of that. And there's a strong, strong case. And they're so happy, they just need to wait back. And they wait a month for the judge to get back with them. 
And when the judge gets back with them, it doesn't go their way. And they are devastated. And this lawyer then goes back and meets with the man on death row. And the lawyer says to him, I'm so sorry. And the man on death row says, he waits, he pauses, a very meaningful pause. And then he starts to share with him about the truth has come out. You see, for as long as he's been in that, in that death row, about four years, I think it is, for as long as he's been on that death row, he's been called a killer. And all these people are just describing him in certain ways again and again and again. But those things weren't true about that man. And what this lawyer had done was come to bring the truth to him. And he said, if they came to hang me tonight, I'd go with a smile. Or they come to kill me tonight, I'd go with a smile on my face. I've been set free by the truth. It reminds us of another passage where it says, the truth will set you free. The truth is coming. Now, that might cause you and me to be somewhat scared because, you know, what's concealed, what's hidden might be all those sins, all those things we've done wrong. Oh, no, because, again, on that last day, those without Jesus, that will be brought up and they will be accountable for that. But what about you and me? Well, you know, the truth is, the truth that was whispered, as it were, to those disciples that they were to go proclaim to the people was that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. What was whispered and shared with them in private that they would go and share to the world is that Jesus has come to fulfill the Torah, the instructions. All of that was done by Jesus. And he is not only the temp, the Torah, but also the temple. Jesus is the place where we meet with God. That's the truth that is revealed more and more. And you know, because of what God has done for us in Jesus, the testimony that God gives about his son is that Jesus, his life, his perfect life for you, his death on the cross for you, his resurrection for you, his ascension to rule over all things for you, is sufficient to take your sins as we confess our sins that we did earlier to remove them from us as far as the east is from the west so the truth is, when we go before God one day, and all those things to be revealed won't be revealed. Our sin won't be revealed. Do you know why? Covered by the blood of Jesus. We don't need to be afraid of the truth being revealed. For you and I are made new creations in Christ. The truth is, we are forgiven our sins cling to us no more. The truth is we are God's beloved children made righteous through the work of Jesus. Amen? I said amen, but we're not done. The second thing, the second point that is made is that we can't be separated from God. You see, the opponents can kill the body, but they can't kill the soul. So nothing's going to separate us from God. You know how it says in the Gospel of John that no one can snatch you out of my hand. What it says in Romans 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Romans 8, 38 and 39, nothing can separate you from that love. And yet, maybe what we need to remember is that you know, if somebody comes up and tries to get rid of us, that's not going to happen as far as separating us from God. 
but I wonder how much of an influence the world has. Remember how it says, what benefit is it for a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? Hmm. Or, I'm reminded of that little illustration of the frog. You know, if you take a frog and you put him in boiling hot water, he just jumps out immediately. He's just out. But if you put him in lukewarm water, you just keep warming up the water, he'll boil to death in that water because he won't jump out. I wonder if you and I are being influenced to see our connection, our union with Christ as less and less important and what we do, how we operate, what goals we're trying to achieve as more and more important. And we may not be separated by opposition right directly attacking us, but we might be separated by the way of the world that continues to warm up the water to lead us away from Jesus and ultimately finding our life, not in what we do, but in who we belong to, Jesus. You know, if we're not living under him with all of his righteousness, with all of his joy, with all of his peace, we might have stuff to be afraid of. I'm going to read a little bit to you some, some things out of the book I just found really fascinating. This is from the book, The Cross Before Me, Reimagining the Way to the Good Life by Rankin Wilborn and Brian Greger. They first quote Thomas Merton, and he says this. Now, this is a little harsh, but listen to it. He says, if I had a message to my contemporaries, it is surely this. Be anything you like. Be madmen, drunks, and bastards of every shape and form, but at all costs avoid one thing, success. If you're too obsessed with success, you will forget to live. If you have learned only how to be a success, your life has probably been wasted. Then he goes on to show why he says this. Frustrated ambition. Andre Agassi, if you're my age or older, you probably know who that tennis player is. He's one of the most decorated American tennis players. Eight-time Grand Slam winner. Agassi went from the long-haired rebel people love to hate to the shaved-head champion people love to root for. Yet Agassi has now confided that through it all, he hated tennis even at his moments of greatest personal triumph. He wrote in his autobiography, Open. Now that I've won a slam, I know something that very few people on earth are permitted to know. A win doesn't feel as good as a loss feels bad. And the good feeling doesn't last as long as the bad. Not even close. If he didn't enjoy tennis, why did he keep playing it hour upon hour, day after day, week after week, month after month? Couldn't the same question be asked of many of us? Why do we keep doing what we know isn't working? Why do I keep stressing and struggling and trying so hard to perform and to meet some standard in my head rather than sitting back and rejoicing in God who's in charge of all things? I was really impressed as I'm reading this book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And it's just an amazing book. There's all these facts about the greatness of God and his creation. And, and one thing said in there, 
And if this is somehow wrong science, please get back to me, but I doubt it. Frank Turek and Norm Geisler are pretty, pretty solid guys. And they said that if gravity was changed by 0.0, and there's 37 zeros after the point, and then a one, if it changed by that much, we couldn't exist on this world. Also said that if the oxygen level on this planet was just a few points, percentage points greater, we'd have spontaneous fires. And if it was just a few percentage points less, we'd suffocate. This God who's created this world, who's made this place, who's made our intricate bodies just as beautifully and wonderfully as they are, who's made us people of dignity, who struggle with depravity, this God is one that we can trust and find our life in him, not outside of him. Andre Agassi is certainly not the first athlete or celebrity to experience the profound disappointment that comes with smashing success, worldwide acclaim, and inconceivable wealth. Millions watched Tom Brady's interview on 60 Minutes after his third Super Bowl victory. He now has six rings and counting and is widely considered the GOAT, the greatest of all time in professional football. Toward the end of the interview, sorry, uh, toward the end of that interview, Brady said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, Brady says, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't. This can't be what it's all cracked up to be. The interviewer interrupted the ensuing silence with a question. What's the answer? Brady responded, I wish I knew. And then repeated, I wish I knew. Tom Brady and Andre Agassi both speak from the absolute pinnacle of their professions, unfamiliar heights for almost all of us, yet they express a feeling familiar to many of us. We all want to be happy, but we don't know what will make us happy. The 20th century writer Thomas Merton captures the tension precisely. Why do we have to spend our lives striving to be something that we would never want to be if we only knew what we wanted? Why do we waste our time doing things which, if we only stop to think about them, are just the opposite of what we're made for? We're, made, we're not made to go and try and achieve and produce and do enough so that God will love us. We're made to live in union with him and to trust him to catch us and to give us a meaningful, abundant life so we don't have to be afraid even if we lose it. But that's just it. If only we knew what we wanted. We're like arrows ceaselessly seeking a target. Yet the search for happiness is irrepressible. We're searching for a happiness that will finally bring us some rest. Then he goes on to write this. And I know it's a lot of reading, but this is, I think, just great stuff. Listen to what he writes next. Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand. Some of you may have seen that movie. I've seen parts of it. Was an international bestseller that turned into a major motion picture. The book tells the story of Louis Zamperini, 
an Olympic track star whose athletic career was interrupted by World War II. For the first half of his life, Zamperini's resilience and grit helped him survive, survive a series of horrific ordeals. He survived a plane crash in the Pacific, in the Pacific theater of the war. He spent 47 days on a life raft, life raft, catching rainwater as he could, trying to fish as he was able. On that raft, he was shot at by an enemy aircraft and circled by sharks. He was finally rescued, but alas, by the Japanese. He spent more than two and a half years as a prisoner of war, was tortured physically and mentally by his captors, the most menacing of whom was known as the bird. He was stretched far beyond his ability to endure, but somehow he survived. He was finally rescued and returned home. The riveting tale of one man's resilience has inspired millions. The book was so popular that many missed the irony of its title, Unbroken. It's true that Zamperini had incredible determination and an almost indomitable will to never give up. But the book doesn't end with Zamperini being liberated from his prison camp and going home. He comes home and gets married, and the same grit and resolve that enable him to survive the prison camp take a dark turn. His marriage suffers horribly, and he's mostly to blame. He becomes an alcoholic. He cannot let go of the deep anger he feels towards his captors, the bird in particular. He dreams of returning to Japan to seek his vengeance. He cannot forgive those who mistreated him. Though he is free in America, in many ways, he remains imprisoned. Zamparini had thought his life was saved when he was finally liberated from that prison camp. But that was not when he became free. That was not his moment of redemption. Not until his indomitable spirit is finally broken is he set free from his anger and resentment, set free from his pain, set free to live in a way he had never had before. Unbroken may be the book's title, but Hill and Brad makes clear that the structure of her book and that Zamperini's life is not saved until he is broken. He needed to be broken. How many of you are struggling in life, broken relationships, broken bodies, because you've yet allowed yourself to be broken by God? A plane crash couldn't do it. 47 days adrift at sea couldn't do it. Not even two and a half years in a prison camp could break him. Not until his marriage is failing and he finds himself lost in the bottle. Unable to make his own life work, does he have an experience with God? Zamperini's life turns when he is touched by God at a Billy Graham crusade in a tent in downtown Los Angeles. It is only when he is broken that Louis Zamperini's breaks through to a new life. Our book is written in this conviction. That's the author. Their book is written in the conviction that while Zamperini's story is extraordinary, anyone who wants to find the life that is truly life must follow in that same way, the broken way, though it will take different forms for each one of us. None of us, I'm sorry, no other way but losing our lives will bring us the rest and happiness we long for. That's why we see Zamperini's story alongside, I'm sorry, that's why we set Zamperini's story alongside two of the most accomplished athletes of recent memory, 
fierce competitors with an insatiable desire to win. Tom Brady, Andre Agassi. Because they, from the top of their respective mountains, are telling us that climbing the mountain of personal accomplishments does not work. It is not the way to happiness. If you struggle with an addiction, do you find that when you've given in to the addiction and feel that pleasure, that that satisfies you? That you're happy? Or does it bring incredible guilt and shame and further struggles? Do the words that you sometimes express to others about those not present, does that make you feel happy and fulfilled? You may be saying those things because you're not like them. But maybe there's a need for you also to be broken. so that you and I and all of us as God's people will not separate ourselves from the true source of life, will not let our culture push us to find some other way of finding life. Because as we are in Christ, even if we lose our physical life, we have nothing to fear because the one who gives us life, hope, peace, joy, our awesome future is the God will never leave us nor forsake us even if we lose our life. That's the way. Union with Christ and God. Going the way of the cross. Then the third one, so we've got one and two. One is the truth is coming out. Number two is the idea nothing can separate us from God, even death. And then three is our great value. He talks about sparrows and how two sparrows are sold for a penny. And the word there for penny is actually, uh, turns out to be about one sixteenth of a day's wage. So think of what you get paid for a half hour. Now, for some of you, that's a lot. For others of you, that's not very much. But two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them falls to the ground without God knowing. You see, God values all of his creation. But you and I are the crown of God's creation. We have so much more value than just the birds of the air. He even knows the number of hair on our head and even probably how long it is. Psalm 139 says that he knows a thought before it even is formed on our tongue and comes out of our mouth. This God in charge of gravity, this God in charge of the oxygen in the air, this God in charge of all these other things knows us intimately and loves us anyway. Why not be afraid? Because our value is far greater than we can even imagine. And lastly, go back to Peter for just a moment. If we go back to Peter, we think about this one who denied Jesus. Did Jesus deny him before the Father? The answer is no. Because the bounty of God's love in Jesus is so great that he forgives even our most heinous sins. What sin have you done that Jesus can't forgive? Jesus says in Matthew, in Matthew 10, if you deny me before, before men, I'll deny you before my Father. And yet his love, his mercy, his great 
His, his greatness was so great that he would forgive even Peter's denial. He can forgive whatever you bring to the table today, whatever you have done, whatever, whatever has happened that you've done or that's been done to you was paid for at the cross. Jesus and his grace is sufficient for you to remove your fears. We take time to think of the God who will bring truth to light one day, who gives us the abundant, happy life in our union with him in Christ, who values us more highly than we can imagine, and who forgives even our greatest sins. This God encourages you and me today to not let any fear stand in our way of being those who acknowledge and confess him before others. I'm curious, what opportunities will God give you to confess him, to share the great things he's done for you with others today? And I pray that you be encouraged and strengthened so to do it. Amen?